Welcome to Sex Ed with DB. I'm your host, DB, aka Danielle Bezalow. Let's get into it. Back again for another good old episode of the podcast. Today is a really special one. We're talking about all things HIV and PrEP with some truly incredible guests. First up, we have Ashwini Hardikar. Ashwini is Director of Grants Administration at Callan Lord Community Health Center. She's an advocate for relevant sexual health education and access to resources across the lifespan. Next, we have Les McCullers. Les is an HIV case manager at the LGBTQ Center in Manhattan. His work is centered around HIV prevention as well as advocating for people living with HIV. Finally, we have Tondi Harris. Tondi is an avid and passionate HIV activist and spokeswoman of Positive Women's Network. Currently, she does community outreach at World, Women Organized to Respond to Life-Threatening Diseases, the only organization in the Bay Area that supports women living with HIV and their families. Here we go with Ashwini. Ashwini, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. Um, super stoked that you're here from Callan Lord. Um, would love to have you tell us your name, your background, and your title. Sure. So my name is Ashwini Hardikar. Um, pronouns I use are she or they. And um, I'm the director of grants administration at Callan Lord. And um, before I was grants administration director, I was director of prevention and outreach at Callan Lord, which um, was, you know, it entailed providing HIV testing, PEP and PrEP navigation. So that's kind of how I know a little something <laughs> just a <laughs> about, little bit <laughs> about this topic. Amazing. Yeah. Um, and can you tell us a little bit about Callan Lord and the populations that you all serve? Yeah, absolutely. So Callan Lord Community Health Center uh, was formed about 50 years ago, right around the time that the Stonewall um, uprising happened. And it was formed basically to fill a, a need that was not being met at the time, which was uh, non-judgmental and um, relevant health care for LGBTQ individuals in New York City. Um, and as time went on, of course, the HIV AIDS epidemic hit a few decades after Kellen Lord was formed, and that became a very big part of Kellen Lord's mission. Um, the name comes from uh, two people who are visionaries uh, in both the healthcare world and the LGBTQ community, um, and their vision and influence kind of informed Kellen Lord as it was formed. So um, Michael Kellen was a composer, a singer, songwriter, and he um, passed away of AIDS-related complications at a pretty young age. And then Audre Lorde is a black feminist lesbian writer who also um, had cancer and passed away of cancer um, and wrote beautifully about her experience living with a chronic illness and also intersections with race and gender and sexual orientation through that experience, still very influential. Um, so today, Callan Lord um, operates in Manhattan, which is our main site in Chelsea. And then we also opened a site in the Bronx a couple of years ago, and Brooklyn will be opening in 2020. We provide um, primary care as well as a number of other services to all people. Of course, our focus is the LGBTQ community and people living with HIV, um, but anyone is welcome. So 
aside from primary care, we also do um, gynecological care. We do transition-related care for um, people that are trans or gender non-binary. Uh, we do HIV testing, PrEP and PEP navigation, all sorts of sexual health services, health education, community education, you know, all the, the kinds whole, of education. The whole gamut. Yes, <laughs> that's great. That's really wonderful. And how many people, roughly, like every year, do you serve? And can you talk a little bit more about like the transition aspect of how you serve people who are going through tran- transition or thinking about transitioning? Yeah. So um, I believe that the number is about eighteen thousand patients are seen annually between our two sites. Um, And when it comes to trans-related care, so unfortunately with everything relating to primary care and trans-related care is considered primary care, um, we are currently in the Manhattan location close to new patients, but we are open in the Bronx. Um, So basically if you're a person who is interested in getting these types of services, you can call us up. Um, our webs, our um, number is on our website, and I'm sure you can also link to it for sure, <laughs> in, for the, sure. in the description. Um, you can just call us up and say that this is a service that you're interested in getting, and you would be connected with a provider who has availability. All of our providers, like we don't, we don't compartmentalize. Like certain providers see our HIV positive population, and certain people see our trans population. Like everyone does everything at Callen Lord for the most part, especially these types of, um, you know, primary care related things. So, um, you know, somebody, we can match someone with you based on if you have a specific preference for like gender identity of your provider. Um, but they'll meet with you and talk to you about, you know, what your transition related goals are. If you have a history of treatment, um, if you have a diagnosis of gender dysphoria, um, and they can provide you if you need, you know, hormone therapy, um, they can provide you with a prescription for that. We also have, um, self-injection classes in case the hormones you're taking involve injections where you don't have to come into the clinic all the time. You can either train yourself or train a loved one to do the injections for you. Uh, And then we can also give referrals and help coordinate uh, things like surgeries for gender affirming, um, you know, uh, care, whether that's like uh, top surgery, bottom surgery, things like that, and helping to make sure that it's covered by your whatever insurance it is that you have. Awesome. So transitioning to HIV, which is kind of the main point that we're going to be talking about in this episode, um, what are some common myths about HIV and transmission that you have come across over the years, um, and and how do you debunk them? Yeah, that unfortunately continues to be um, a really, really big problem, Um, even with the level of education and awareness um, within the LGBTQ community, there are still a lot of myths and misconceptions out there. I'd say um, transmission-related myths are very prevalent. Um, There are only five fluids that will transmit HIV, and those include blood, semen, vaginal fluid, breast milk, and rectal fluids slash anal mucus. So coughing will not transmit HIV. Um, Tears will not transmit HIV. Sweat will not. So, you know, when you're talking about behaviors, things like kissing, hugging, um, sharing a bed with someone, sharing a toilet seat, like 
these are never things that are going to transmit HIV. Mm-hmm. It's really specific to these fluids and the behaviors and activities that might put you in contact with someone, um, with someone's fl- fluids that can transmit HIV. So largely, globally, we're talking about unprotected sex. Um, unprotected sex is the number one way through which HIV is transmitted. Um, there's several fluids that can be exchanged during unprotected sex. Um, also, needle sharing um, to inject drugs or hormones or any other substance um, is definitely a way that HIV can be transmitted. Um, Sometimes people who are taking people's blood in like a a work setting can also be exposed Mm -hmm. um, through like a needle stick. Uh, Breastfeeding is another way um, that transmission can occur. And um, for people who are pregnant and unfortunately either don't know that they are HIV positive or are are not on treatment, um, HIV can also be transmitted during pregnancy and childbirth as well. So these are really the major ways. Blood transfusions, yes, maybe in some other parts of the world that are a little more under-resourced, but in the United States, that's really not an issue anymore. So that's a a huge, huge concern. Um, And still people experience HIV-related stigma where people are like, I wouldn't date someone who has HIV or I wouldn't employ someone in a school that has HIV. And really, especially when it comes to your work setting, um, unless it's, you know, like a a needle stick or something, there's really no reason why you would be exposed to HIV, Mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in that type of setting. I think another big misconception is that there are other ways to treat or even cure HIV aside from actual medication. Mm. Um, So there are still a lot of myths out there. And unfortunately, they're sometimes even peddled on in the mainstream media that things like natural remedies and treatments and homeopathic treatments can cure or treat HIV. And the important thing to remember about those sorts of, um, you know, uh, I don't even know if you should call them treatments, but those those types of activities is they have to be complementary. Like you can certainly do natural uh, medications, you can do homeopathic and stuff like that, but that has to be a complement to whatever it is that you're. Um, medical provider is prescribing as well. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, there is really no way to treat HIV without taking medication. Right. Um, and that is really the key to staying healthy. If you don't take medication and you live with HIV, unfortunately, over time, you are going to get sicker and sicker because your immune system is going to become more and more compromised. And eventually, unfortunately, it could even result in death. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it likely would take a while to get to that point. But, um, you know, these like natural treatments and stuff, they, they cannot replace a medication. So I think that's another really big myth. Um, I think also just the the idea that HIV only affects certain individuals or that it's not possible that other, you know, if you're if you're not, for example, um, a member of the LGBTQ community, or if you're not a drug user, that like it's impossible for um, HIV to uh, become a reality for you. So yeah, certainly if you are not engaging in certain activities, your risk is lessened, but your risk is not you know, zero. There, there are definitely cases um, 
of HIV transmissions happening and it being, you know, pretty surprising to the person because mm -hmm. they didn't expect based on who they were, who their identity was, that this is something that they were going to have to worry about. Right. And in our classes in, in my MPH at Columbia, we do kind of talk about how if you are having sex, you are at risk. Exactly. And that's kind of the bottom line. And we don't really think about that. I think we always kind of, and similar with like unplanned pregnancy, I feel like we think, oh, it won't happen to me. Mm -hmm. um, and unfortunately, if you're having sex, especially if you're having unprotected sex, it could. Right. And I mean, the other thing to remember about, about, um, about HIV is that and, and STIs in general is that safer sex really works. Mm -hmm. You know, like if you are putting on a condom, um, even with typical use, you are decreasing your risk of contracting HIV by like 75 to 80%. Um, if you're using it perfectly, then you're, you know, you're close to 99%. Right. Um, if you're on prep, which I know we're going to talk about a little bit later. Oh, we are. Yes. Um, you're actually going to reduce your risk by up to 99%. Um, so, you know, sa there are safer sex options out there. Um, so yes, HIV is serious, but also there are really effective ways to protect yourself that everyone should know about. Yeah, let's dive into that, shall sure. we? <laughs> um, so the next question we have is, how has HIV treatment and care changed over the past 30 years? And can you kind of talk about, like walk us through a history of like kind of what it was like 30 years ago, maybe during like, you know, the AIDS epidemic and what it's, or the HIV AIDS epidemic and what it kind of looks like today. Yes. So, um, in the early days of the HIV AIDS epidemic, when truly nobody really knew what this was or how it was transmitted, it was pretty much, you know, a death sentence. And it was true. It was a horrible um, disease that people got that involved a lot of suffering and a lot of pain. Um, but that really changed um, with the... and. I don't remember the exact year and you can certainly well, fact, check, um, yeah. fact check me. I think it was 1996 um, when the first uh, so-called like AIDS cocktail was created in terms of um, the HIV medication, often known as AZT, um, which pretty much got people to undetectable and undetectable. Basically what that means, there's a, there's, this is another myth is that when you are undetectable, that means that you're cured or that HIV is no longer in your system. Mm. That's not the case. What undetectable means is that your viral load. So basically the concentration of virus per milliliter of your blood is below 200 copies per milliliter. So that is really the gold standard. We want to get people to that point or below because once you are at below 200 um, copies, that's when you're really back to being healthy and you know, you're feeling good. Able and to live a normal life. Able to live a, a healthy, normal life, do any activity just like anyone else. And also, I know we're going to talk about undetectable equals untransmittable, but that is true. Um, when it comes to sexual behavior, if you are undetectable, it is statistically impossible to transmit HIV to somebody else. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really for both of those reasons, both for the 
person's health as well as the health of their partners, we want to get people to undetectable. So this this drug or this, you know, several drugs was fantastic because it, it did give people the ability to live, which they weren't able to do before when they were HIV, HIV positive. However, um, those medications did come with a lot of side effects. So, mm. um, and that again, that conception of what being on HIV medication is like still persists to this day. So yes, at that time, people had horrible side effects. They felt nauseous all the time. They felt tired. They felt weak. They, you know, had uncontrollable diarrhea, like lots of, lots of not pleasant things in order to treat their HIV. Um, and it was kind of this terrible choice that you had to make. Like, do I want to feel sick in order to not be sick? Like it's, mm -hmm. no one should have to make Double that choice. Sword. Right. Absolutely. Today in 2019, it's a very, very different reality. Um, we have medications today that have very minimal or even no side effects. Um, there are many, many medications out there. Um, these days, if you are newly, if you are newly diagnosed, chances are they're going to put you on a drug that might even be one pill once a day, um, or maybe, you know, two pills once a day. So there, you know, it's not like the, where you have to like take it every hour or mm -hmm. take it several times a day, like multiple, you know, six, eight pills at mm -hmm. a time. It's not really like that anymore at all. Um, so generally speaking, like if you take a vitamin once a day, that's pretty much the, the, the experience of like taking an HIV medication mm -hmm. every day or a birth for control some people pill. or a birth control every day pill every day. I mean, there's, there's lots of people that do, you know, take different kinds of medications or supplements for various reasons. So things are definitely very different today. I should also mention that around the same time that, um, the first HIV medications came out, that was also the time that needle sharing programs first became, um, more popular as well. There still is officially a, a federal ban on needle sharing, but, um, there have been great community organizations over the, over the decades that saw this need and decided that they were going to fulfill the need ban or not. So needle sharing, um, or needle exchange rather to cut down on needle sharing has really, really changed the, um, course of the epidemic as well. So at one point, um, you know, something like 50% of all new HIV diagnoses were due to injection drug use. And today it's, it's, you know, close to, you know, maybe one to 5% these wow. days. So it's, it's very, very much, um, decreased largely due to the existence of clean needles and syringes for mm -hmm. people who are drug users. Um, and all of my statistics, I'm going off the top of my head and I should, <laughs> we're going like, to check you. Don't know worry. Them all it's okay. Heart, no, but yes. It's a lot of numbers. <laughs> it's a lot of numbers. It is. So, um, so I would say, like, in terms of the, the timeline, you know, the AIDS epidemic hits, you get medication, you could even throw in, like, the, the death of Ryan White, who was a, a, a young boy who, was, um, who got HIV through a blood transfusion, because at the time, people didn't know right. that it could be transmitted. And the, the ostracization and the stigma that he faced was really, like, a rallying point for a lot of people to mm -hmm. say look, the way in which we're treating people with this disease is really wrong. Mm -hmm. And it's born of ignorance and it's born of, you know, stigma and just not knowing what, what this is. Mm -hmm. 
And then, you know, U equals U, that has really, I believe that the New York City Health Department signed on to that in 2017. Um, and globally, it's really taken off. And when it comes to reducing stigma, I mean, this is like maybe one of the most important developments when it comes to tackling HIV stigma. Um, because to be able to say to someone that if you are undetectable, you are not going to transmit HIV through sex ever mm -hmm. as long as you are undetectable is huge. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that today there are people who would consider as sexual or romantic or relationship partners, people living with HIV who they wouldn't have considered before. Um, and I think that the, you know, kind of the, the sense of feeling like an equal and feeling like you're, you're a worthwhile person for right. people who are living with HIV, U equals U has been just so life-changing. I really can't overstate how important that is. And I am being intentionally like very clear about my language. Like I'm not going to say it greatly reduces your risk. Right. Like, no, there is no risk, right. right? There is no risk. Um, when, when you are undetectable, uh, and that's when it comes to sexual contact. The mm -hmm. important thing to remember is that, uh, other activities like breastfeeding and, um, needle sharing, even if you are undetectable, you can still transmit HIV. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But globally speaking, it's really, we're talking about sex, um, as the main right. mode of transmission for HIV. So for a lot of people, for maybe most people who would have been at risk of HIV, um, having their sex partners, um, if they are HIV positive, be undetectable is, you know, hugely, hugely important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, can you talk about PrEP and how it works? Yes, absolutely. So PrEP is another, I think, life-changing intervention. It was approved by the FDA in 2012. And basically PrEP is an HIV medication. Um, the, the medication is Truvada, um, and that is used as an HIV, along with other meds, as an HIV um, treatment as well for people who are living with HIV. But what they found is that for people who are at risk of HIV potentially, um, being on PrEP reduces your risk of contracting HIV. They say 99%. Statistically, it's pretty close to 100%. Mm -hmm. There have been a handful, and I, I really mean a handful, like you can count on one hand, the number of people who, while actively on PrEP, seroconverted, meaning like became HIV positive. So it is a possibility, mm -hmm. but it is highly, highly unlikely. Like hundreds of thousands of people have been on PrEP over the past seven years that it's been approved, plus the many years that it was in clinical trials. And we have a handful of confirmed cases of people who have been on PrEP and um, converted uh, to HIV positive. So basically the way that PrEP works is it's one pill once a day. Right now, the only drug that is approved for this type of HIV prevention is Truvada. Um, you can take it any time of the day, just try to keep it around the same time. Some people like to take it in the morning along with breakfast. Some people like to take it at night so that if they do have side effects, they're just asleep and they don't even you know experience them. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, uh, it protects you from becoming HIV positive basically through creating, I mean, kind of like a, 
a layer of protection around your T cells so that your T cells, if HIV does enter your system, um, HIV can't basically bind to your T cells and make your T cells um, or CD4 cells uh, kind of like these little HIV replicating machines that they, that, you know, could happen otherwise. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's basically how PrEP works. It's actually even been found to be pretty effective if you take it four times a week rather than every single day. Definitely we recommend that you take it every day. Why is that? So basically like the concentration of medication stays in your body um, for several days. Okay. So what they found is even if you take it four times a week, you're still about 97% protected. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely every day is better. Right. Um, but you know, sometimes people like they miss pills or they're trying to make, they have a high deductible or something and they're trying to make their pills last for longer. Um, so, so there are all sorts better of reasons. To take it. Like maybe people think like, oh no, if I didn't take it every day, then I can't take it anymore. Exactly. But it's better to take it at least every day is the, is the gold standard. Mm-hmm. At least four times a week is kind of yes. second best. Exactly. Exactly. And the other thing about prep is, um, when it comes to access, um, in New York State, we are very lucky that we have programs that should cover just about every single person. Um, there is a program that's run through the AIDS Drug Assistance uh, Program, uh, which is the New York State Department of Health, and that covers even undocumented individuals who may be uninsured. So it'll cover any uninsured person to help them access PrEP as long as they meet the income requirement, which is pretty high for Mm -hmm. a single person. I don't remember exactly. I think it's like 55,000 for Mm -hmm. a single person. Um, So, you know, hopefully if you're making more than that, you can afford to get insurance, you know, some way or another. But if you are uninsured, um, you can get your, uh, your, the cost of your doctor's visits and everything covered through the ADAP program. And then you can get your medication covered through Gilead, which is the pharmaceutical company that makes Truvada. Oh God, it's so called Gilead. Do you watch called, Handmaid's Tale? Yes, oh I know. It's, it's so That's terrifying. It's like it's it's a really they weirdly apropos. Oh God. Name. Okay, I was like, oh God. Um, yeah, triggered. yeah. I know. Um, so yeah, Gilead makes the the medication, and they have a program for uninsured individuals who are below a certain income level. Again, again, you can be undocumented and still access it. And then if you are insured but you have copays, your copay could be ten dollars a month, or your copay could be like I have to pay a five thousand dollar deductible before I get coinsurance. Um, in all of those cases, the copay card should cover you in full. So what I would say if anyone is listening and is interested in getting prep but is concerned about how they're going to pay it and uh, pay for it and they live in the New York State area is come to Kellen Lord. Um, we have in, we have staff who are devoted to helping people get on prep and they will sit with you, talk about your options, talk about what programs you might be eligible for. Um, and you know, if, if you are going to have to pay something out of pocket, they can talk with you about what that is. But, um, if you have questions, come in and talk to us and a human being will meet with you and talk about your specific situation and come up, come up with a plan that's right for you. Amazing. Yeah. Um, can you talk about PEP and uh, who takes it and how often they take it similar to PrEP or is it different? 
Yeah. So PEP is, I often like to make the comparison between like birth control and the morning after pill. So you can think of PrEP as like birth control, where it's something that you're taking every day in anticipation of potentially being exposed to HIV. Whereas PEP is, on the other hand, you've had the exposure, like you had a condom break or you you know, shared a needle with someone, or you just forgot to use a condom, like those sorts of situations, and you weren't on PrEP already, um, that would be where PEP might be something that you should consider. Mm -hmm. So basically, PEP is a medication that um, is effective up to 72 hours after an exposure, and it's a medication that you will take every day for 28 days. Um, oh, I had no idea. Yeah, okay. it's, it's, it's 28 days that they recommend that you take it. Um, so you can come to, for example, Callan Lord and get it. Um, we... We prescribe PEP to people every single day. Um, there's also the health department clinics throughout the city are another place where you can get PEP. And there are emergency rooms as well, but usually at an emergency room, they'll give you like a starter pack and then tell you you have to go somewhere else to get the rest. Um, so let's say you come to Cal and Lord. Um, basically, what'll happen is you'll get an HIV test to confirm that you're negative to begin with. Um, and then they'll talk to you. Your counselor will talk to you about what kind of exposure it was because sometimes people come in thinking that they need PEP, but actually they don't because, okay. you know, the exposure, the activity that they did was very low risk. Like we talked about myths. Mm -hmm. Some people think that kissing someone, um, gotcha. you know, or having oral sex with someone uh, is uh, that you might need PEP for that reason. And really, even when it comes to oral sex, like it's pretty almost impossible to right. contract it. Um, so the person would talk to you about um, what your exposure was and then, you know, make a determination about whether PEP is going to be right for you or not. And then you'll get labs drawn and you'll meet with a doctor or, or a provider who um, will prescribe you PEP. And then you can get it at, you know, whatever pharmacy you choose. We have a pharmacy or you can go to another pharmacy if you want. And they'll basically give you a month supply of the medication. And um, there's some medications that you take once a day for PEP. And then there are others that you take like one pill once a day and the others twice a day. So there's different, there's different regimens and it, it just like with the HIV medications, the one that they put you on depends on different things, like whether you're on other medications or have other conditions. It's very that, individual. Exactly. Exactly. And so then after the, your 30 days are up and you finish taking the medication, you come back and you get HIV tested again. And, you know, if you want to make the transition to PrEP because you had this exposure, you can do that. Or if you say, you know, this was just a one-time thing. I don't think I'm going to be exposed again in the future. Mm -hmm. You don't have to make the transition to PrEP. Um, but that's, that's basically it. And just like with the HIV medications and with PrEP, generally speaking, people don't have too many side effects. Um, and if they do, they go away after the first week or two, but usually they're pretty mild. But, you know, what I would say to anyone who is on any type of HIV medication, whether it's because you're living with HIV or you're using it to prevent, um, that if you have concerns about side effects, call your medical provider and talk to them about it um, because there often is a way that they can be lessened mm. or eliminated altogether. So rather than just going off of them completely, talk to a medical professional before you For choose sure. to do that. Yeah. And so for PrEP though, so do people take PrEP to prevent 
HIV transmission as well as to lower their count when they're already, when they are HIV positive? So you would, so the pill Truvada, you wouldn't take Truvada alone if you are HIV positive. Mm. Um, if it's you a combination are, of Truvada and other things. Yes, okay. yes. So if you are on PrEP, yes, you can take Truvada alone, but we don't want you to take Truvada alone when you are when you are HIV positive because um, you can develop resistance to the drug. Got it. Um, so that's the only that's the only d- distinction there. So are HIV medications covered by insurance, and how can folks who don't have insurance afford them? Yeah. So um, there are federal programs um, relating to coverage for people living with HIV. They're in all 50 states. Um, The way in which they are administered in different states varies. In New York, again, we are are very lucky um, in that we have a very robust um, system of services and, um, you know, resources for people living with HIV. So in theory, no one who is living with HIV in New York state should be going without care, um, due to financial or insurance related reasons. Um, so you can get your medications covered through the AIDS drug assistance program, and you can get your medical care covered also, um, through Ryan white programs. And then if you need additional supportive services like case management for any reason, or, you know, you're having trouble with housing or you're having trouble with like, uh, you want to get some sort of transition related care and you're having trouble finding a provider, um, there are providers like Callen Lord that are funded specifically to provide those wraparound supportive services too. And, you know, I wouldn't under understate the importance of those supportive services. When it comes to HIV, sometimes we often think about healthcare, medication, doctor's visits, but we know from lots and lots of decades of research plus the, the, um, stories of people living with HIV themselves, that sometimes these supportive services are just as important, if not more important, in order to help a person access the care that they need. So people make priorities um, and prioritize the things in their lives that are important to them. So if you are unsure where you're going to sleep tonight, sometimes that's where your energy is going. And you might forget to take your medication or you might forego your doctor's appointment for that day because you're trying to deal with not having to sleep on the subway. Mm -hmm. So, you know, those sorts of things are, um, those, those wraparound services are really, really crucial when it comes to ending the epidemic as a whole. One final question I have for you is what can people living in New York city specifically do to support HIV positive populations, whether that be donate, volunteer, just be more aware? Like what, what would kind of your list of things be, um, that you recommend? Yeah. I think that ending stigma, all of us are involved with that. Um, even people who maybe don't think about HIV very often. Um, you know, like I think that, that talking to your friends and your family and doing your own education and research about what HIV is, what living with HIV entails, what PrEP is, um, that's valuable information for everybody. So I think that, you know, you can access really great resources out there like Pause Magazine is a great, 
great resource. Um, it has all sorts of articles um, that are published, I think, daily about um, HIV-related topics, and um, it's a great community for people living with HIV or people who are on PrEP. Um, there's also The Body is um, a website that is a great resource as well. Um, AIDS Map is another great resource. Um, the National Minority AIDS Coalition has um, a lot of great resources on their website. So there's a lot of places that you can get your information. Um, I think also like the language that we use about a lot of things relating to sexual health. Like, are you clean? Are you dirty? You know, like totally. that sort of thing um, only contributes to stigma. So, you know, when you go and get an STI test, like rather than saying, oh, it came back clean, you can say everything came back negative. Mm. You know, like it's just a very slight shift in your language. And I'm sure even I trip up on that sometimes because it well, is so ubiquitous in our culture. Absolutely. Um, but that sort of thing definitely um, can contribute to stigma. I would also say, don't assume that you know what a person living with HIV looks like. Um, there is really no way to tell. Just like there's not any way to tell about a lot of different chronic illnesses, um, there's no way to tell by looking at someone that they are HIV positive. Um, so I wouldn't make assumptions about people in your own life, people who you encounter, um, whether they do or they do not have HIV. So know that it's something that is private, that is, um, if a person does choose to share it with you, that you should keep private, um, and that they're letting you into this part of their life because they trust you and they want to share this with you for some reason. Um, it's also really important to remember that in New York City, HIV, being HIV positive is a protected status. So it is illegal in this city to discriminate against someone in housing and employment, um, in lots of different arenas, um, just because a person is living with HIV. So if you're a landlord, if you're someone who does hiring, if, um, you know, all different sorts of positions, uh, just know that you, you could be putting yourself at risk if you, if you do that. Um, hopefully it's not just for that reason that you wouldn't discriminate, but mm -hmm. at the very least, um, I would say that that's, that's important information as well. Um, and then, you know, Every year there's World AIDS Day, which is all about like celebrating life as well as remembering people um, who we have lost to this disease and as well as like continuing to uh, improve prevention and knowledge and education about this. Um, so I would say participate in some activities and it doesn't have to just be around World AIDS Day, but at, in December it can be really easy to find a lot of events that are out there. Um, so yeah, I think that all of those things advocate for comprehensive sex education. Um, if you have kids or other young people in your life, like talk to them about this. Um, be sex positive or sex neutral, like whatever feels comfortable for you. Um, we definitely don't want to be sex negative, right? Um, so yeah, I think those are those are some important ways to combat stigma. Our graphic illustrator is Alana from Imperium Illustrations. Alana specializes in custom, illustrative cover art for books, music albums, and podcasts. She captures your story's soul and amplifies your voice in meaningful design. You can check out her latest projects at imperiumillustrations.com.au. Did you know that one out of every three women identifying individuals have reported having painful sex within the last 90 days? 
There are so many reasons why people can experience this type of pain, and there's an incredible tool out there that can help. Meet Millie. Millie is a vaginal dilator for people with vaginas who have painful intercourse. Millie's single insertion, one millimeter at a time expansion puts the user in control. It can relieve physical pain from conditions like vaginismus, endometriosis, fibroids, cysts, IBS, surgery, chemotherapy, and emotional pain like anxiety, depression, and stress. Learn more about why so many women are choosing Millie at www.millimedical.com. Um, well, Les, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. Of course. Yeah. I'm really glad to have you and hear all about you and your story. Okay. Yeah. Um, let's get started with your name, um, a little bit of your background, whatever you want to share and your title, where you work. Okay. Well, my name is Les McCullers. Um, it's the him and he pronouns. I... Um, my background, what can I say about myself? This is just like writing the bio. <laughs> so my background is in public health. I am from Maryland originally. I went to the United States Navy. I did four years as a military police officer. Um, and one of my last duty stations was Connecticut, in which I got my um, bachelor's in public health from the University of Southern Connecticut State University. Awesome. Long, long name. Um, and then I moved to New York City to do, you know, one of my passions, what is helping humans flourish, be happy, and take care of themselves the best way they can, um, both physically and mentally. Um, and my first job here was at AIDS Healthcare Foundation, where I did um, rapid HIV testing for a mobile unit. And that brings me to my new position, which I've been in for a year, as an HIV case manager at the LGBT Center in Manhattan. Amazing. Yeah. You are good at writing bios, according to what you just said. I've been through a lot of interviews. But it's tough. It's yeah. Tough. I mean, you you kind of like have to memorize your story, right? <laughs> to like what get is it my out. story again? Yeah. Like, who am I? Um, okay. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that. That's really cool that you got your bachelor's in public health. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so yeah. So where did you grow up in Maryland? So in Maryland, there's a small city called Salisbury, Maryland. Okay. It's People don't know about that. Number one, only way you would know about that is if you drove through it because you have to get go through it to get to the south. Technically, on I ninety five, you go to not thirteen. But the best way to put it is it's near Ocean City, Maryland. So when people hear this, they'll think Ocean City, and they're like, "Oh, that shitty town." <laughs> That's where I'm from. Got it. Um, I grew up. Um, I, I grew up one of two. My brother's thirteen years older than me, but my parents. Um, they had me a little bit later in life, and it was good. It was good for the most part. I went to like a a really diverse high school. When I originally um, was about to graduate, I wanted to be a fashion designer. Oh. Once I got my packet from Fitham, I was like, I can't afford this. Yeah. So, life took me in a different direction. I joined the military and just grew up and just learned more and more about myself. You'd be surprised, you know, looking back on 18, thinking you know something. Oh, for sure. And here it is, um, 12 years later, <laughs> <laughs> I'm 30. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, I've learned so much in like a decade and two years about for who sure. I am. And it's still a learning process. Yeah, it's ever-changing, right? Yeah, ever-changing. That's amazing. Um, let's see. So... Yeah. What are you passionate about besides, so public health, obviously, mm-hmm. um, any other passions and like, where do you see kind of yourself going in your life? I mean, I have a lot of passions. Yeah. First share all, them I'm, with I'm me. I'm a Leo. So, um, I've learned that we have a really good creative side. 
I think my main passion is like living each day like it's gonna be the last or at least living my life um to this full potential because i'm not sure what happens after this one we might just come back who knows you could be just live stuck in a loop we don't know right um but yeah my main thing is to like enjoy myself while i'm here so public health is like my forefront of helping people on like you know on a clinical health professional side but i'm love just being around people and meeting new people yeah. and being able to talk and to share emotions and to grow and be one society you know right now and i feel like in um especially in america we're really divided so wherever i can enter a space and try to like get people laughing get people together but also thinking and having a good time that's i think one of that that's my mission i can't say there's too many other missions besides being happy and that on on, and success and all the other words that you have to put in life that's that's it being happy. I love that. Okay. I completely agree. I think there's a lot of shit that we do every day that mm-hmm. doesn't lead to like ultimate our ultimate goal of just like being happy, being around people we love, like doing things we love. And I think like your way of life is one to look up to. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> just trying yeah. to make it out here. I'm just trying. <laughs> um, okay. So... Can you tell us more about your work at the LGBTQ Center in New York City? Of course. So my work there is underneath the HIV prevention team. Um, it's now part of community support. And I guess we act as not only a place where people can come and see the art, because this center is a art exhibit, too, from a lot of the early ages of the HIV epidemic as far as... Um, where GMHC originated from and things like ACLAP and stuff like that. But um, we have prevention methods and HIV counseling. So my day-to-day job looks anywhere from like helping someone can get connected to PrEP. A lot of my day, we have shifts. A lot of my days sometimes include HIV testing. So we do um, a rapid test for people that are interested in doing that. And then a little bit of like sexual health counseling goes into that as well, where a lot of people are afraid of something they know nothing of, right. which is, can be, it's like anyone, anything's like that. But like helping someone understand HIV and its importance of like at least knowing the modes of transmission, that's one thing. Sometimes we just, I have conversations with people about the language they use, you know, like it's, it's people are quick, but like, I just want to make sure I'm clean and I'm good and I'm like not, you know, I'm, I'm like, you know, clean. I'm like, this is, this is one of those things right there, that word alone, like, Put you in like a vulnerable position because if you if you're saying this to me, what are you saying to people that you're meeting on the online dating apps or the person you're meeting in open spaces? So HIV testing, sexual health counseling, and then HIV case management. There's a lot of people that come to New York City with a bag full of dreams and a pocket full of nothing. <laughs> Let's be honest, that's right? That's so real. Yeah, that's how I moved here. I literally was almost at the point where I was sleeping in my car almost because I couldn't afford to live here. I couldn't yeah. find an apartment. Who can? Like, who can? It's no, so incredibly no expensive. No one. They make it very stressful. But a lot of LGBTQ youth, especially people of trans experience, especially um, MSN men of color um, from other cities, either come here because they want to make it big in the industry or where they were was, was not working out and they need a lot of support. Mm-hmm. People that are positive come here with 
what they have. Sometimes they don't have any medications. They're on their last medications. So I try to like act as a hub to intercept them when they get here. They call the center or they come in. And in any given situation like that, as a person who's living with HIV, I know it's kind of like important. It rings like the medications change. You need it. You want to get it. And I want to get it to you. So mm -hmm. a lot of times I'll meet someone. If it's early enough in the day, we can get them over to a sexual health clinic or a another community-based organization that offer like um, services like that and get them started on um, their treatment, their blood work. Um, I gotta stop saying um. <laughs> <laughs> totally cool. That's how it's people like the, talk. It's like the worst thing a part of like, speaking. Don't say um. But <laughs> we uh, we um, help people connect to prep. Prep's a big thing. Yeah. Um, and pep. Pep. We've already talked about prep, but pep is like something that people don't know much about. Yeah, so can that, you tell us about it? Yep, so PEP is um, post-exposure yeah. prophylactic, P-E-P. So this can be given to anyone. I like, the way I like to explain it is like, people in the medical field, like nurses, um, police officers, people in the sex industry, um, or should I say sex working industry, or people who have sexual encounters that don't know about HIV. It's a post-exposure prophylaxis means that if you feel like you might have encountered HIV in any modes of transmission, then you can get this medication within 72 hours to take, and um, it's supposed to blast your body and keep you protected from contracting HIV. Yeah. But that window period is so important, and a lot of time I find out that people, that's when you find out that People don't know how HIV is contracted. I've had like tons of um, MSN guys with sex with guys. They'll come in, but I gave this guy head, and he came in my mouth a little bit, and I'm like, I'm not really sure. I'm just like, I have to like, you know, and they'll want to test. Yeah. And the thing about the test is the test has a window too. Mm -hmm. So in a 20 minute session, I spend about maybe 15 of it like going over all the windows and right. like how it works, but. Um, that's pretty much the gist of my job. I think that was the beginning of the question. That was. You answered it wonderfully. Um, yeah, yeah. And I imagine there are a lot of people who kind of come in like extremely like overwhelmed and stressed and just looking for like someone to talk to about it. I recently, and I'm staying within my HIPAA code, <laughs> I recently experienced a session with a client where um, they live through... The, I guess the bitter end of the epidemic because the epidemic came, it closed in once the medication was like this, distinguished and they had figured out what's going good. And that's pretty much 11 years ago, if we want, if we want to look back at it, because 96 is when I think the medication hit the market okay. for people to be able to take, but it's changed so much in the years. For sure. Um, so 11 years ago, this person decided to stop taking test and thought that he had HIV and it was really hard to I guess like contain my emotion for him because he had lived his life for 11 years thinking that he had HIV and what that meant was 11 years of waiting for death 11 years of going down this road of substance abuse alcohol abuse depression anxiety um I can't imagine what he lived with for 11 years, right. not no, by not knowing, right. waiting for things. And to deliver his results, that being negative, and like having to sit there and like really wait for the emotion to like go through. And he told me so much about 
how he felt. And, and the thing about it was that for 11 years, in that time, he had met a really great person mm. that he was with, that he refused to touch because he didn't want to, like, because he cared so much about them, didn't want to get them sick and, like, or, you know, spread HIV. Um, it was hard. And yeah. a lot of times it gets, it gets like that. It's not, it's never easy. People come in very, very frantic sometimes. They don't sure if they need PrEP. Pep, a condom. Right. They don't know any in, in in any given situation. I try to make things fun, lightweight. I remember my diagnosis and my experience, and it was terrible. Mm. You know, one health provider told me it was my fault, which was terrible. Ugh. So, when you're with someone in touch, like I think it's a vulnerable state, and you have the opportunity to lift them up, give them what they need, at least to get them through the next day or two, or mm-hmm. something to remember. Especially that 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 moment. That's my idea. It's to like make it easy, make it fun, make it meaningful. Yeah. But make it last and make it a good impression because I remember that that impression. Yeah, yeah, I can't imagine. Um, yeah, and you are like having such a positive impact on people every day, which is really awesome. I hope so. Yeah. Um, Okay, so as a person living with HIV, what are some myths that you want to dispel for people listening who may not have heard from a person living with HIV? Some myths. I should have read that question for anybody. Right <laughs> oh, myths, myths, myths. I guess I don't really have any myths for people living with. Um, I hear a lot of crazy things. One, I already said, people don't know how... HIV is contracted. Right. Two, I've seen people or at least heard of people who do get PrEP that they don't take it as prescribed. And mm. I want to like be right here and be and say this clearly that that's not how PrEP works. Yeah. You have to take it every single day. At the same time. Yeah, it's not PEP. They're like, oh, PrEP is just like PEP. It's the same thing, right? So it's not PEP yeah. at all. It's a different medication and it's taken a lot differently. Mm-hmm. Um, what else have I heard? I've heard... Um, I don't know. I don't yeah. know how to answer that one. That's fine. I don't think I hear really myths. I just know that right now, and not a lot of people are having conversations that they should. Yeah. With people that they meet on in the right way. For sure. Yeah. Um. Okay. Let's see what we have next. Um. So yeah, for people who are living with HIV. What kinds of medications do folks take every day in order to, I don't even know how to say it, but like keep it under control or what's the right like language for that? So the right language would be viral load suppression. Yeah. That way the virus can't copy into your cells and and then raise your viral load, which would increase the risk of transmitting the disease. So all the medications are, um, they're called ART. It's anti-viral load. I'm not even going to, those words are too big. (laughs) Just in case you didn't know, ART stands for antiretroviral therapy. The medication is made to suppress the virus into the body to where it's called undetectable, mm-hmm. which means it can't be transmitted. Right. A lot of ways to like a lot of ways to view that or learn about that is going to the CDC's website or the World Health Organization's website and look up U equals U, undetectable equals untransmittable. Um, but everyone's on different medications. Okay. It depends on like what blood work. In the labs and how you're efficient a person's 
PCP do doctor is, like, um, primary care doctor, or their infectious disease doctor. Some people have two different right. doctors. Um, also, people were exposed to HIV at different time lengths. Like, someone who was exposed to HIV in 1988 may be on a different medication from someone who was okay. exposed in 2019. Oh, that's and interesting. And a lot of time they are because certain the medications, when they, early, when they released them earlier in the years, the body got used to it. You know what I mean? Like, it's used to this. It's hard right. to trance to move on something else. Typically now, when if a person is diagnosed with HIV, there's new medications, and most of them are one-a-day pills, but that's something that I do see a lot of people that are newly um, diagnosed get caught up on. They're like, I don't want to, like, have three pills. And yeah. everyone's like, I just want the one pill. Because a lot of times the one pill, it's a peace of mind, but it's different. Yeah. Medications change. Your body changes as you get older, and... It's it's very 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 manageable. No one dies from HIV anymore. People die from a lot of other things. My chances of dying from HIV is like zero to me um, walking in the street with my headphones on and not paying attention to the one, little white man. Which people do that a lot. Yeah, it's New York City. Everyone yeah. wants to die some kind of way. I guess <laughs> get out of paying rent. Um, okay. Uh, so, how do you personally navigate dating and sexual relationships in terms? In terms of how you choose if, when, or how to disclose your status? Um, well, this is a great opportunity to share my story. So, first of all, I'll start the with the caveat is I do always tell all my partners. I tell everyone almost now. I feel like in my position, my job, and what I want to do as an activist, it's for me personally, I like to like disclose that because I feel like I'm fine. I feel great. Yeah. I look great. And also, I want to help with this you know, anti-stigma movement because we don't want stigma. No one wants stigma. Right. HIV is way more manageable than diabetes. In any given case, it's harder um, for that. But I had this story that I knew I was going to, on the train, I was thinking about it. I had this case where I did not tell someone because, like, it was, like, one of those situations where you're kind of laying cornered for sex and it's, like, very gray and you don't think this person, one, this person didn't care about himself at the time, not sure how he's doing now, um, but I was like, oh, I don't know. And someone told them that I was positive. And I remember I was sitting at home. It was a Saturday afternoon. I was in bed. And I got a Instagram message asking me about my status and, like, blaming me and saying, like, I can't believe you would do that. And, like, said a lot of, like, it was very more, it was mortifying. It was, like, almost as bad as originally finding out that right. I was positive because it, like... Like a repeat it, of the trauma. Yeah, it, like, rang even harder in my head. It was so heavy. So it took me, like, almost two years to recover from that and to be able to even put that into words to talk to someone about. Yeah. When I was ready to hit it again, like, I felt like, you know... About to release my new album, and it's oh, all me. I love that. That feeling of like, yes, I'm back on the scene. Yeah. I just decided from that moment on, from that bad experience, I'm just going to tell everyone. And I've even had like people do like Tinder or like uh, Grinder that I feel like, oh, how would you, what if, how do you feel about your positive? And people have said a lot of negative, nasty things. Mm -hmm. um, and I would hate if they ever like met someone or contracted them themselves. But I felt like, it gave me a way to screen people on a more like almost molecular level. Like if you're willing to like dismiss someone because of a disease they didn't have any like control of getting, right? You're probably not the greatest person, and I don't want you in my life, right? At all. So you get out like all the assholes so, beforehand. I was in a I was out at the bar last night, and I had no hesitation to tell this guy I was positive. 
I almost tell everyone I meet. Yeah. Almost. Not everyone. It's a little <laughs> weird if you're just telling people that. Just going up to random people. They're but, like, yeah, who are you? But yeah, when it, when it comes to dating, I decided to disclose right away because, you know what, what's going to happen? Am I going to get stoned or like burned to the stake? No, this person can reject my greatness and they can keep that negative thoughts to their self, but I'm not going to put myself through something like that. And it's also not only like telling a person and disclosing, it's and them like being like, oh, it's okay. It's like, then it's like, what do they know? Because then a lot of times, like I've had sex with guys that said one minute, oh, it was okay last night. But the very next day, like, should I go get pep or prep? I'm mm-hmm. like, come on. Like yeah. we barely even like did anything. Or, right. And, or it was like really bad. You should go get help about sex. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I run a support group at the center for people living with HIV and for a lot of the people um, living with a, a long-term survivors, those are people that have had it for like a long time, probably since the epidemic. It's hard for them, and because it, it was so much stigma when it first came out, like oh it's, for it's sure, so bad. That yeah, I can't they, imagine like being in the '80s when like everything was happening and everyone was completely stigmatized right. from it. They they no, they can't. And a lot of the people that are newly diagnosed still struggle with that, and I, I've been there and I understand, but. I can honestly say it get easier as you go farther along. My friends are very supportive and care about me. They've all gone through the extra steps of learning more about how HIV works, how it's contracted, the language that's used. One of my closest friends um, said something crazy um, maybe about three years ago in front of me and my best friend. And it was so crazy. And my best friend just looks at me and he's like, almost blue and I'm like it's fine I'll I'll fix it later on later on right before I moved here I was like hey what you said about our one friend I was like I'm HIV positive and you should be very careful because it makes you look crazy yeah but I don't have a problem with disclosing it because I feel like someone that can accept you will accept you and the people that don't you don't need exactly yeah that's really awesome thanks for sharing so couple more questions what do you want young people to know about HIV like folks for example like we just had an interview that'll go on our like queer sex ed episode just Mm -hmm. about like obviously how like sex ed in the whole country needs a makeover but Mm -hmm. specifically with HIV you know we learn about it in schools like middle schoolers high schoolers do and all that they really learn about about it is like don't get that and like it's scary and like all of these things you know along with all the other STIs and STDs um, absolutely nothing about pleasure obviously nothing about how to navigate dating and relationships um, but if you could kind of like redo like sex ed curriculum in schools regarding the the topic of HIV like what would you want young people to know I would want more young people to know what HIV is, first of all, understand how it's contracted. That's very important. The five modes of transmission. I'm not even going to say them on this because I want people to go look up the transmission. Don't even, and when you're using Google and you're using these search engines, use credible sites like Planned Parenthood, CDC. Those type of sites because that's going to give you the most current and updated information. Besides that, no one dies from HIV. People that don't know their status are not helpful. Getting tested regularly is helpful. And, getting, and knowing when you need to get tested. And not only getting tested for HIV, that's just one thing. 
people should also know that STIs are still rapidly increasing Mm -hmm. all over the country, definitely in the Bible Belt states, the Midwest, um, and the major metropolitan cities. There's a lot of theories behind that, but it's important to not just get tested for HIV, but also get tested for STIs. It's inherently important to also use protection and honestly talk to the persons or persons you're having sex with about what's going on, you know, feelings, emotions, everything. It's important and to use good language. It's very important to use good language in any given setting, whether it be HIV, whether you're talking to a person of trans experience, a person of color, use good language. Like testing isn't about clean or dirty or whatever. It's about knowing your status and knowing if you need treatment. And that's it. HIV is very manageable. It's one of the most easiest um, disease. I'm not going to say that. I's not a doctor. <laughs> Probably a mosquito bites will bite a little bit more easier. But um, <laughs> it's very manageable. Yeah. And I don't think a lot of people understand it. It's very scary. Also, if you're living with HIV and you're having emotional problems or emotional you're hitting a wall, seek mental health counseling. There's lots of grants out there for people living with HIV to be able to get that mental health counseling they need with low, zero to no cost. Um, and it's important because it's important. America doesn't add that in healthcare, but mental health is very important. Oh, we have an entire episode about it. Yay! <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's going to be great. Um, okay, and I guess the last question that we have is, how can folks who are listening support those living with HIV? I think the way that you can support someone living with HIV is to be be supportive, be their friend. Um, you don't need to ask them if they're doing okay every day, but be supportive, be their friend, understand what HIV is, how it affects others. Look at some movies from the 80s. Understand, like, you know, St. Vincent, what happened there. Um, there's so many movies. Under, to, under, that's one of the things I would also say to young people. It's like, you know, you don't know what you're afraid of until you understand of where it came from and how it was treated and how you were misled. Mm. As a public health um, professional and going through the curriculum, looking at how the media and how the news covered HIV. Oh my God. It was so stigmatized. How politics, like Reagan, was completely dismissive of people with HIV. It's so bad. And I think that's a part of supporting a person is knowing the history of something they're living with and understanding that it's a lot different now and that stigma is a big thing and understanding what stigma is. Because a lot of people don't know what stigma is. Like, knowing what stigma is and how that's not helpful for anyone. Mm -hmm. Um, And just in... You know, just enjoy something, help someone enjoy like their life. You know what I mean? The last thing a person wants to do is feel isolated. And that's the first thing that happens when you contract HIV is you feel like there's no one else around. And that gets very hard. So, yeah, just being supportive and being there for them. I almost cried, but I no, didn't. It's but okay. I didn't. It's okay if you, if you do. <laughs> yeah, just no one wants to feel isolated. So that's a good friend is to be there and be supportive. Yeah. Is there anything else that you want to, like, mention to folks listening? Like, where, if they think they want to learn more, like, where they can visit? If they're living in New York City, where should they go? If they're living in New York City and you are interested in getting connected to PEP, PrEP services, sexual health counseling, if you're a person living with HIV and you feel like you could benefit from a support group or if you could benefit from anything, 
that's LGBTQ related, or if you want to become an advocate or activist, the center is a great place to start. And if we don't have it there, there's a really great people there that will help you find your way. And if it's not at the center, then we'll send you somewhere else. And as much as possible, there's a really, really big need to address the homelessness for the LGBTQ youth in New York City, especially those that are like, you know, getting pushed into drugs and sex work that don't have to. If there's a way that anyone can start an organization or donate or help someone going through that, it'd be very, 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 it'd be like saving a life. And that's what it is. Uh, other than that, just, you know, remember, we don't know what's going to happen after this life. So live this one great. <laughs> Thank you so much for You're being welcome. on the podcast. I appreciate it. Looking for a period game changer? Meet Lena, the reusable silicone cup that collects your monthly period blood. No odor, no leaks, and so comfortable you'll forget you're on your period. 90% of first-time Lena Cup users never go back to pads and tampons. Go to lenacup.com and use promo code SEXWITHDB to get $5 off your first order. Lena, a better period. Need a new sex toy? Spectrum Boutique is an awesome, sex-positive toy store that has a no-nonsense approach to sexuality and sexual education. They believe that fulfilling your sexual desires is an important self-affirmation and human right, and they welcome all identities, curiosities, and experience levels. Go to SpectrumBoutique.com and use discount code SEXEDWITHDB10 to get their latest goodies. Hey, Tandy, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Oh, I'm glad you had me. I'm I'm glad to be on the podcast. Good. Yeah, we have a yeah we have a loads of uh, good questions to ask you. So let's kind of go ahead and get started with you sharing uh, your name, a little bit of your background, and how you identify. Sure. Right. Uh, you mean my gender? How I identify that way? Yeah. Sure. However, you kind of share your identity. Sure. So I am Tondi Harris. I work at an organization based in Oakland, a women's organization called WORLD. The acronym stands for Women Organized to Respond to Life-Writing Diseases. We are the only nonprofit aid service organization that particularly helps women living with HIV and their families. We also do a lot of outreach with SLAP and um, prevention. What else? But what I mainly do, I do something called early intervention services. So I go out and find people who are positive, who have been out of care for a while, for whatever reason, and I bring them back to to, to the clinic that we have. And the clinic is associated with AHS, the AIDS Health Foundation Clinic. Um, what else do I do? Oh, I am also a spokesperson for an organization that is open-based called the Positive Women's Network. Positive Women's Network is an organization that really does policy and advocacy for women living with HIV. They do things in social justice, economic justice, reproductive justice rights. And I found out about them through World. Um, and I love CWN. They have allowed me to about rights 
on the behalf of women living with HIV, and it's been feeling for myself. And because of PWN, I got involved in advocating for uh, HIV criminalization, well, HIV decriminalization, should I say. So in California, the laws in the book are based on stigma, and you could be criminalized to for for just it was basically on a higher status, and they called it um, oh oh and now it was a felony uh, if mm. you if you did certain things such as if you, if you were soliciting for sex and they charged you for that, which would be a misdemeanor, but if they if when they tested you, they could trump and you tested positive, they could trump the charges and that misdemeanor would be a felony. And it has opposed to sixty days, your sentence would be seven years. First yeah. So those were the books those laws were on the books until recently or last year the governor signed it. So now that's no longer on the books. And I, I I had the opportunity to do my testimony in the state assembly in Sacramento. And it was amazing. I met some wonderful, amazing people. I got to go to conferences because he's not a crime, and I got to know other advocates that are doing that are advocating for HIV stigmatization in other states. So it was a wonderful experience. That's really amazing. That's so great. How did you get involved with? Um, Positive Women's Network and World um, to begin with? So in the beginning, I I was involved with World through a social worker. Um, She suggested I go to World um, because, you know, when you get to this diagnosis, it's devastating and it changes your mindset and it helps to have an extra wing of love and support. So she's suggested I come to world and get that support and I did and I learned about positive women's network through world and actually I'm thinking about it Nana Kong who's the founder of positive women's network started started the organization through world because I mean world in the past has been politically active and active in policy and they still are but she was she was the one that started a separate organization called Positive Women's Network. And Positive Women's Network is not just here in the Bay Area, but it's all around the country. They have seven active chapters in various states, Colorado, Louisiana, New York, um, and I think some other states too. Uh, and, it's, and it's been uh, those women getting to know them was, is amazing because they are so strong and active in their advocacy, and I learned a lot from them. Yeah, that must be so beautiful and, like, healing to have a community of people who come together and, like, share their lives and and fight for HIV decriminalization together. Yeah, HIV decriminalization is one of the issues, but they also advocate for a whole host of other issues, economic justice. Um, they, 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 they advocate for health care. Um, they advocate for, it varies um, within the state, you know, what each chapter does. 
but it's a, it's, it's a whole host of other issues that they advocate for um, that cater to the, the needs of women living with HIV and their families. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really awesome. And as a person living with HIV, what are some, like, myths that you want to dispel for people listening who may not really have heard from other folks living with HIV? Oh, sure. So just looking at a person, you would never know. Mm-hmm. I know in in the, the gay community, uh, there's this idea that to 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 take ownership of your own sexuality by protecting yourself. It's not so much I find in mainstream um, in the mainstream community or in the heterosexual community. People don't take ownership of their sexuality. They rather how can I say this about oh fuck it. They 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 rather push push their responsibility on someone else. Mm-hmm. And because because it's just the norm, the culture to do that. There's a lot of shame, and it's extremely hard because because all the responsibility relies on one person to come out and disclose, and that takes a lot of courage because you are being vulnerable. You are putting yourself in a place where a lot of people would not because. To, to to openly come out and say I have I'm living with HIV, there's a lot of stigma attached with it, um, and because there's a lot of stigma still attached with it, you know I find on my job people don't come to clinics, people don't take their medication because they believe they are bad, they believe they are infectious, they they believe all these horrible things that are not true. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my myth dispel I got out to to the community at, at large is ha, as long as a person's in care, they're taking their medication. They're not infectious. They're not bad. You know, and and they deserve love and and to be treated as a human being too. And even if they're not in care, that that person's life is valuable too, and they deserve to be treated with love and respect too. And mm-hmm. HIV, and just because you have HIV, doesn't mean you're inherently a bad person. I was speaking with a colleague, and he he was saying that you know our situation sometimes we uh, uh, it's a we have a way of making things according to, it makes it selfish. What I mean is, just because you have HIV doesn't mean, you know, you did something different that nobody else did. Everyone has that, and most people do. Right. It's just, you still happen to become infected. And HIV could happen to anyone. No one is exempt. And mm-hmm. if there's just this concept in the community's mind that, oh, that would never happen to me, or, oh, those people over there. But really, this would happen to anyone. And it's it's not good, but it's not the worst thing. It's, It's just something that happens. 
According to HIV.gov, approximately 1.1 million people in the U.S. are living with HIV today in 2019. About 15% of them, one in seven, are unaware they are infected. African-Americans and Hispanic slash Latinx folks are disproportionately affected by HIV. In 2017, African-Americans accounted for 43% of HIV diagnoses and only 13% of the U.S. population. Hispanic slash Latinx folks accounted for 26% of HIV diagnoses and 18% of the U.S. population. Totally. Yeah, and I'm really glad you said that about just like, there is this kind of certain idea that people have of, oh, like it it won't happen to me. And and we kind of talk about this in, in another interview in this episode, but like, just to really reiterate, like anyone who is having sex is at risk for HIV. And like, there are obviously some communities who, where HIV is more prevalent than other communities, but it's really Mm -hmm. important that people know that like, if you're having intercourse, then like you are at risk for HIV. Yeah. And there's, there's, you're at risk for other diseases too, chlamydia, syphilis, um, all these other diseases. And you could put that analogy if you take an action just with anything. If, if you create a business, you, you could be risking your money. That's just, you know, the, the role of the game, you know? Mm-hmm. So anything, and, I, and I'm, anything that's worth having, there is risk. And the issue is that people don't take the time to educate themselves on that risk, you know? They don't really investigate and have the conversation. And the reason that for, there's many reasons they, they refuse to have a conversation, but the main one is just because there's a lot of shame and the way we were taught about sex was that, you know, it's purely emotional and, you know, you don't talk about anything. You don't talk about these things. Money and sex is a, is a no-no conversation. Right. And, and I feel that that is dangerous because you never really get to know the other person intimately, you know? And that whole concept of intimacy is, is, is missing. Mm-hmm. And yeah. speaking of intimacy, so you've spoken in the past about dating with HIV. Um, can you talk yes. about that and, like, how you navigate that in terms of if, when, and how you choose to disclose your status? Sure. Um, so it, it varies. In the beginning, uh, it was hard. And it was hard because I was diagnosed at 20, my late 20s, 27. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I, I had to, to really, really sit by myself and think, oh my God, I, I, I have this. I don't want to infect other people. What, you know, what do I do? And what helped me is just being around other women and listening to their experiences mm-hmm. and hearing what they do. And that gave me a range to, to pick from, to, to see, well, Tandy, and I had to ask myself, after seeing, you know, hearing those experiences, I had to ask myself, Tandy, where do you want to be? Tandy, what do you want to do? I had to do some soul searching. So normally, 
there have been, in the beginning, people I have not told my status to. And I have to be honest about that. And <laughs> I know no saying this on a podcast, there may be some backlash. That's okay. That's, no, that's I okay. mean, I think it's, it's really, it's, it's completely individualistic, you know? Like, no one yeah. can really judge, like, you, they have no, you know, people listening who aren't HIV positive, like, no idea what you are going through, what other people are going through, what that experience must feel like. Like, it's not an easy thing to to grapple with. No. No, it's, it's, it's not. Especially when you are in a state where you're just not ready to accept your own diagnosis. It's hard to even bring it to the surface and express it from your lips. Mm-hmm. You know, and some, there are a lot of people that are that that's emotionally where they are. They're just not ready to accept their diagnosis because it's the worst thing in the world to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that at one point I was there too. And right. people might might ask, well, why were you seeing people? You know, there's this assumption in the community that after you have a any STI, you should just stop stop being human and stop wanting sex and stop stop talking to people. But that's a fallacy and that's a lie. Um, because, you know, humans don't do that. I mean, I, in my experience, I have never stopped having a sexual drive unless I was sad or depressed or something. I mean, mm-hmm. I have my seasons, but eventually it comes back. And, you know, I, I, I still um, get approached by men. So, you know, and if I find one interesting, I will tell them if I, and when I feel safe enough. And that's another thing. I had to learn that I was was okay. I had to learn to be okay with me and then feel safe enough that no matter what happens, you know, no matter what, as long as I told, I know I'm okay with me and I know I'm safe. I, I had to learn the, that self-discovery thing because I feel that now HIV, having an HIV diagnosis is more of a mind game or a you know, conquering your emotions more than anything. Right. And in order, yeah. yeah and in order to have a healthy life, um, I, I find that I'm really learning to start to accept myself and love myself so that if maybe the other person has a limit that they're, they're saying, no, then it's okay. Uh, you know, and you, I, I can deal with it, I'll be okay. Um, and then there's times where it, it may not be physically safe to tell them, you, you know, you never know, but you just gauge by the individual in the conversation. Mm-hmm. And you, you, you um, make what in, in, in facing uh, about HIV, especially since I work in the field, I can, I can do that. And you get you get to know their if there's any biases or you know if if they have any issues with it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I imagine there's a large amount of trust that needs to be the foundation of even a friendship or a new relationship or even if it's someone you're just starting to date um, before yeah. you can share something like that um, because there yeah. is a lot of fear of like what the other person's going to say or. Um, how they're going to react or what that means for your relationship. 
Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah, I think, like, you have every right to kind of, like, bring that up how you want to bring it up, you know, because it's your kind of, like, conversation. Yeah. But um, I'm learning that it's important to have those types of conversations because if you don't, it it, um, it, it eats at the relationship. And mm-hmm. that, that's something I've learned just uh, learning myself and growing in maturity. That's just uh, something I've discovered. Right. And going back a little bit, I would love to talk more about the policy work that you do with Positive Women's Network and World. Can you kind of talk a little bit about, like, so you're based in Oakland. So what does that look like in terms of what kinds of policies are there right now around HIV? You kind of mentioned a little bit about, you know, what happens if you're caught as a sex worker and goes from a misdemeanor to a felony, if you're HIV positive when you get tested, um, but what are some other kind of policies that are enacted already right now, and, and how do you want to change them uh, to decriminalize HIV even further? Oh, so, so as, of, as of January 2018, Bill SB, I forget the number, but it, it, it's been signed by the governor to decriminalize HIV. Um, the most of the policy work really that I do at World is really grassroots community level work, just going and educating people about HIV. And I do a lot of prep in prep work and prevention, you know, just educating people about it. So people don't even know about the medication of uh, Travada. They don't. Mm-hmm Especially in communities of color for some reason. And if I do know about it, the information is is kind of skewed because they assume, oh, this is a pill for just for gay people. And I've never, I mean, I don't know where they would get that from uh, or assume that because maybe in the marketing of it. True, yeah. The the commercials do have, or do cater to the LGBTQ people, but um, Shabbat can be for anybody. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And, yeah, so what what kinds of policies, like, do you want to see in the future, would you say? Maybe, like, not only in California, but nationally around HIV, maybe around, like, uh, education or prevention or, yeah, what kinds of things do you all work on at PWN? Um, At PWN, I know they are working on a lot of the... Uh, a lot of the women go to go to DC, and they they have been protesting a lot of the the, the rollback for the healthcare, and so they're trying to protect Obamacare. And even some of the women have gone to to then ended up being locked up. And I thought, oh my god, that is so brave. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, they, but they do it because they're so passionate about it. Um, a lot of the, the women have been doing stuff around protecting food stamps and just reproductive rights. So I know um, this, in, uh, that, that the government has been attacking, you know, birth control and all that um, in, in coverage. So a lot of what PWN has been doing is, basically been vocal about being against it. 
And then I know on the border that the feds have been separating families based on their HIV status. So recently I know PWN put, put in a call about that and making people aware about that and calling their senators um, because, you know, that's concerning that, you know, we would come to this country, even if it doesn't matter why or how, but that she would be separated on your family just because of an HIV status is ridiculous. But mm, can you say are, more about that? What do you What do you mean by that? Like, how are, how is that happening already right now? There, I believe there was um, an order at the border patrol in the um, off of between Mexico and I believe it's the state, and so has 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 families are coming in. Uh, people uh, people are being tested and then detained and separated from their children and, you know, and, and put away separately just because of their HIV status. Wow. That is yeah. wild. Yeah. Um, kind of transitioning to a little bit um, around kind of what you wish, like, young people knew about HIV or kind of any, like, parting things that you would want listeners to know about HIV, whether that be about your own experiences or just what you want folks to know um, for the future or just what you hope kind of happens in the future when it comes to um, getting folks the things they need for folks living with HIV um, or HIV prevention. Oh, sure. Um, I, I, like, directly... Asking the asking the just to repeat the question, you want me to answer the question of what I want young people to know about HIV? Yeah, sure. Just kind of like any parting um, kind of ideas that you have in terms of if you were to say kind of your last um, words of wisdom, I guess, for your interview. What what would they be about HIV? Well, to the young people living with HIV, um, I would say I wish you would speak out more. <laughs> um, I would love to meet you, more of you. Um, a lot of the women in PWN, uh, a few of, I see a few of them are young, um, but they're long-term survivors. They've, they've had a virus since they were babies. I don't really get the need. Women that that have had the virus for, I mean, I've had it for four or five years, but I've never met young, newly diagnosed people, and that may be because of stigma. And they're young and still in their sexual prime, and they don't want that that stigma attached to them everywhere they go. And I can understand that. Not easy. That's part of the psychological game. Um, but I wish they would come out and, and share their stories. Um, I wish they would allow the world to see them because they are beautiful. And I know they have so much to give. And for, you know, for someone to allow stigma. Because for a while, that's what I was doing. I was allowing my own self-shame and the 
in the com- let, letting what the community thought of HIV stop me from speaking. But I found that when I started to speak, that it was incredibly healing, and um, it's made a difference in my life. And I just hope that you know those those individuals who are living with the virus come out because you just don't know how much your community needs you to speak about your experience. Um, and then for those who are negative, I would say just especially those who are who are who are in the in in the communities of color, I would say that education is pivotal is is pivotal. I would say education is really important, especially when it comes to um, your sexual health and to know your status and to know that HIV or any STI can happen to anybody and to take care of yourself. And also learn about PrEP. Um, I know people are hesitant about PrEP because of various reasons, but if you really look at the research, um, PrEP has minimal side effects. Um, you know, it's but a headache. And once you're, once you're, you're, you feel you're no longer at risk, you don't have to take it anymore. It's, it's not like an HIV regimen where you have to take it for the rest of your life, you know? So, right. you know, yeah, so just be open to, um, to PrEP and, you know, don't be so judgmental. <laughs> That's all I have to say. Self-care is super important to us here at Sex Ed with DB. Luckily, we found a partner who cares about it just as much as we do. Say hey to Sweet Vibrations. Sweet Vibrations is an adult boutique out of sunny San Diego that encourages young people to educate themselves about sexual wellness and improve overall health. Everyone deserves their O, and Sweet Vibrations is committed to helping you find yours. All four of their buzzing beauties are under 50 bucks, so you don't have to break the bank. Go to www.sweetvibes.toys to buy yours today. Buzz, buzz. Is that a vibrator I hear? Nope, that's Millie. And if you've ever had painful intercourse, then this vaginal dilator may be just what you're looking for. Millie is an easy to use, 100% BPA-free silicone dilator with optional, gentle vibration and user-controlled in-vagina expansion. Millie enables you to gradually increase size without having to deal with the sometimes awkward and painful stages in between dilator sizes. Millie has a range of 14 to 40 millimeters and expands one millimeter at a time. That's like having 26 standalone dilators. And in the spirit of Marie Kondo, no one needs that many dilators. Learn more about Millie at milliemedical.com. Our creator, producer, and host is me, Danielle Bezalel, aka DB. Our assistant producer is Kathy Cohen. Our graphic illustrator is Alana Rance. Our sound engineer is Oliver Devone. Our fundraising co-coordinator is Jamie Cooper. And our other fundraising co-coordinator slash content assistant is Callie Cochran. Our music is by Ben Sound and Hook Sounds. Thank you so much to our featured voices, sponsors, and our listeners. Tune in next time.